Hello, and welcome to the first part of a five-part series for Biology 349 Comparative Anatomy and Physiology. In this little series, I'll be calling Research Recap, and for the reason being, I will be looking into some recent publications, 2019-2020, of really interesting and fascinating findings relating to main topics, or at least topics that I found most interesting when it came to comparative A&P. I'm Gianni Solis, I'm a senior University St. Thomas student, and I'll be the host of this little series that we'll be enjoying together. So, first things first, obviously, when it comes to comparative anatomy and physiology, we need to have a strong foundation. This strong foundation is pertaining to the movement from water to land. So we're focusing here about the evolutionary trends of muscular changes, skeletal changes, overall functionality that happened taking fish out of the water. So in our early tetrapods, we're thinking about how little fins had shifted into some sort of wrist, hand, forelimb musculature to prop our bodies up off the, the ground and sustain our weight when it comes to feeling the pressures of gravity. So when we're thinking about the movement of land, for a little bit of background before we're diving into this really cool paper that I found, we need to understand that there's support in locomotion, that change that allowed for tetrapods to be out and about and scurrying around on land versus swimming and depending on little S-shape movements or slithering movements throughout the water. Respiration, desiccation, feeding, sensory perception, which I have a super cool paper for part five about this one, and reproduction. A lot of those features will tie in to just overall movement. So of course, if we're thinking about just animal behavior now, an animal that has increased or advanced locomotion. So for me, I think of songbirds. Um, songbirds are just really easy to observe when it comes to displaying, courting, and then measuring reproductive success. And there's also migratory behaviors in some of them. Not all, but some of them. In some of those birds, if they have either displays that serve as honest signals to show their physio physiological success, their, just their overall strength, then of course they would have an improved locomotor behavior because they have stronger wing features, something that allows them to do really crazy uh, backflips if we're thinking about the blue mannequin. Um, or just like choreographed dances, again, mannequin birds, if you have the time after the podcast, would definitely recommend looking into those. It's such a cool example of animal behavior and just like overall fitness that's involved with that. Those displays are always fun to watch and it's really interesting to see how um, aerial birds or well, <laughs> how aerial creatures have such different behaviors because of their musculature. But again, I digress. Going back to our evolutionary trends, with that locomotion, there's going to be increased in reproduction just because you're able to get out more. Again, uh, sensory and perception, that'll change depending on your environment. So being able to understand how an animal is able to get out 
move on, improve and evolve and adapt out of its initial environment of being in the water, then perception of different stimulus or um, just overall like understanding of the environment will of course evolve. Feeding will change um, and that is something that's really interesting when it comes to humans and just like thinking about how pharyngeal slits changed. Um, but that's from a later topic, we'll get further into that. And then respiration is a big one. Uh, when we're thinking about how our muscles, if we're thinking just in our abdomen, so for example, our diaphragm, that's a, that's a big muscle contributing to our lungs contracting and exhaling. So taking a deep breath, you can feel that go in. But when it comes to respiration compared to in the water, obviously we don't have gills on land. And so again, those pharyngeal slits, having um, those bones move, little pieces of cartilage move, all of this is moving and adapting for the function of surviving on land. So when we're thinking about support and locomotion, of course, girdles. So the pectoral girdle and the pelvic girdle. In fish, the pectoral girdle was attached to the skull. But obviously now, with free range, we can twist, we can move our arms separate from the rest of our body, from our head, twisting our neck. Um, we do not have pectoral girdles that are attached to the skull. And this is a big factor in allowing for that support when it comes to the transition onto land. Because again, the weight of the gravity pushing down on our bodies with the separation or the detached girdle then there's more of a muscular sling. Those uh, muscles and bones aren't as constricted and we're able to form some sort of undulation or just overall support for the body. So girdles are a key point in that adaptation for life on land. So given that a little bit of background about girdles and how the weight of the body is transferred, because of the shift in girdles, the detachments of the pectoral girdle from the skull and such. Then we can dive in and really focus on these key features that are presented in the early vertebrate evolution, follow the footprints and mind the gaps, a new look at the origin of tetrapods. This publication uh, was released in 2018, so relatively recent, really cool findings. And I think it's, it's interesting to see um, new research and new investigations, new perspectives on kind of an older perspective, I guess. When we're thinking about evolution, obviously it's research done on fossils. And for me, <laughs> being in like a history class, it just doesn't seem as exciting. But of course we want to know how animals are interconnected, um, obviously phylogenetic trees are out there extensive and just massive. And so really fascinating to see how all of these things are interconnected, but not always the most attractive or most sought after. So when I found this paper, I thought that the researchers did a wonderful job. Well, one primary author, um, but the author did a wonderful job at combining all of the main ideas from previous literature 
stating what previous hypotheses for the transition to land was, where these early tetrapods had originated from, and how they're related to, um, I guess, quote-unquote, high-functioning vertebrates now, um, compared to either newer ideas or other ideas. Of course, it's, it's a large list, not an extensive list, because not everything can be included in a review. <laughs> But what, uh, per Alberg from Uppsala University in Sweden had stated, was that the hypothesis of early tetrapods from previous literature state that um, these early tetrapods had evolved during the Frasnian period. Again, I'm not a history buff. Um, not, not my strongest suit, but... I did find this really interesting, and, it, and the breakdown, hopefully I can express this clearly enough, um, but the breakdown of these periods I think is what's really important because the new idea is that early tetrapods originated older than most would assume. And so before there predicting or hypothesizing that these tetrapods had evolved during that Fresnian period in a predominantly aquatic context, but it's been challenged by this new discovery of the Middle Devonian tetrapod trackway, which um, predates to earliest body fossils of both um, opistogids and tetrapods. So I believe we're thinking even further back from just aquatic context, um, where these researchers found the fossils were in mud preserved in like the seafloor or riverbeds or just kind of um, in, in aquatic context that once existed, so dried up now. That's where those fossils are being found. They're preserved really well, so it makes for um, easy recognition of key structures, um, easy speculations on functionality of these structures by, of course, new technologies are so cool for their advancing, um, but making like 3D maps of a fossil to kind of have a, a better picture of what was going on. So when we're talking about the Middle Devonian period, um, the trace fossils that were found here demonstrate that tetrapods were capable of performing super aerial lateral sequence walks before the end of that period. And this period is predating the Frisnian, which is when um, most tetrapods are being hypothesized to have originated from, or, or that's when that early move to land had occurred. So the results of this overall like outline and collaboration of all the previous literature was that um, there's a new interpretive scenario for the origin of tetrapods. And this author, uh, per E. Alberg, argues that the early fossil record of tetrapod lineage, and indeed the terrestrial Devonian world as a whole, is much less complete than we have been tempted to think. So he's kind of stating that tetrapods originated no later than the beginning of the Middle Devonian and coexisted 
as he ecologically separated radiations for at least 15 million years. That is a long time. <laughs> that the evolution of tetrapods was driven by selection pressures towards terrestrialization and quickly led to a reasonable degree of terrestrial competence. Which of course makes sense because if there's selective pressures moving an animal from water onto land, that's their terrestrialization, then of course that animal is going to have to adapt. And that's where the, those girdles are shifting, muscles are, are changing in structure to allow for better functionality, better movement, um, increasing respiration, of course, with those, those structures also changing. Just these key features of kind of basic things that we don't think about, um, we don't really question when it comes to our ability to really run, or I like to boulder, climbing up a wall when um, that's not something that we really take into account when it comes to just overall functionality, I guess. Additionally, he states that um, with the Devonian period, many later tetrapods retained a permanent dependence on the aquatic environment allowing only relatively brief terrestrial excursions. And that continued dependence explains the repeated evolution of a quote-unquote secondarily aquatic form among them. So we're thinking aquatic tetrapods. And those are likely to represent reversals of a somewhat more terrestrial ancestry. And so what additionally, what he's arguing here is not only is there a different time period, but instead of one set move to land one set transition there might have been multiple little transitions or maybe a transition that reverted back or just overall coexisting which of course that's how most of the animals are now but back then when these selection pressures were uh, more significant because if we're thinking about the animal kingdom now just animal behavior changing um, adaptations take a lot of time to happen. Evolution takes a lot of time to happen, um, but a lot of the times in humans, those adaptations seem to be temporary, and so it, it may have also been in these early tetrapods that some of those adaptations were temporary because of the selection, the selective pressures from the environment, from other animals. We wouldn't know, but it's interesting to see what these fossils might reveal. And so from that, um, the, the overall article just kind of dives in more into the historical context, um, which again is super interesting, but I'm not a history buff. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we're comparing a bunch of different periods and eras, because um, that's just not something that I really can get a grasp of, I suppose. What I'm more excited about is how these biological changes occurred. And so what was kind of highlighted here was that there may have been that coexistence, the functionality may have changed because of those selective pressures. And I think that tied in really well with the main topic of the big idea of moving to land, that big transition from um, this first unit looking at evolutionary trends of locomotion and support. And so with that, 
I am going to end this little episode here with a little question about how this locomotion could have been different if it wasn't a selective pressure from water onto land. And also, what are these primary drivers for going onto land? Could it have been reproductive pressures? Could it have been just overall environment with um, decreases in sea level and so more land is exposed? And if we're thinking into bigger picture now with um, new (laughs) discoveries of quote-unquote walking fish or walking sharks where they're living in hypoxic areas so there's low oxygen that's a respiratory selective pressure or environmental pressure that's causing them to kind of adapt to that so with that I'm gonna end this first episode and I'm looking forward to episode two